Welcome to A Great Big City News, episode 49. Today, Ellis Island closes and the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. Visit agreatbigcity.com support to learn how to support New York City local news and allow us to keep bringing you this podcast. If you are a New York-based business and would be interested in sponsoring our podcast, visit agreatbigcity.com advertising to view rates and learn more. Hi, I'm Trace Gilton, founder of A Great Big City. Listening back to last week's episode, I think I noticed a bit of spooky interference. I guess that's what you get when you record a podcast on Halloween. If you're one of the 26,000 people who visit the Wall Street Bull on a typical day, you may soon find yourself needing to ask for a different set of directions. Back in April 2018, when it was announced that the Fearless Girl statue was going to be moved from Bowling Green to outside the New York Stock Exchange, there were also rumblings of a possible move for the Charging Bull statue. The Bull is one of the city's most popular and iconic attractions, but its location in the middle of Broadway has long caused a dangerous situation, with onlookers standing inches away from the taxis and tour buses that travel down Broadway. A small pedestrian area added along the border of Bowling Green Plaza has not helped, and concrete barriers are still necessary along the border to prevent the multiple lanes of traffic from hitting visitors to the statue. A year after the city moved Fearless Girl, the mayor's office has now confirmed that the Wall Street Bull will also be moving out of Bowling Green and into the pedestrian plaza outside the New York Stock Exchange, where visitors can more safely gather around the iconic statue. Tourists may be asking for directions to the bull for quite a long time, as Google Maps currently still shows the Fearless Girl statue as being located in Bowling Green, despite it being moved to the stock exchange a year ago. If you're a fan of the bull, be prepared for its upcoming 30th anniversary, coming up on December 15th, when the bull was first dropped off in front of the stock exchange in 1989 in what the sculptor Arturo de Modica called a gift to the people of New York, that was meant to represent the strength and power of the American people. Despite initially placing the bull in front of the stock exchange, Demotica is no fan of the current plan for the statue to be relocated. Although no final placement has been announced, Demotica was also critical of the placement of Fearless Girl near his statue and would likely be against having the statues placed facing each other once again. The Parks Department does not purchase art to display in city parks, So in a unique agreement, the bull is still technically owned by Demotica, but has also long outlasted the one-year limit that pieces of art are typically granted to be displayed in public parks. This unofficial arrangement over the statue's ownership will likely cause further confusion if the sculptor disagrees with the city's plans to relocate the statue. Checking in with the 14th Street Busway, the Department of Transportation will be installing new bus boarding platforms along 14th Street from now through December 2019. These are snap-together plastic islands that allow faster boarding of buses without taking up sidewalk space. The plastic platforms extend out from the bus shelter and prevent vehicles from being able to block the bus stop and allows the bus to continue along the route without pausing to merge back into traffic. These islands combined with the select bus service method of all-door boarding, allows faster bus stops with more room for passengers while exiting or waiting for the bus. 
Each platform will take about six days to install and will temporarily close the bus stop at that location, but the Department of Transportation will stagger the installations so that the nearest surrounding bus stops remain in service. The busway itself just passed one month in operation after a series of lawsuits delayed its opening. Both City Transportation Commissioner Polly Trottenberg and Transit Authority President Andy Byford have publicly praised the results of the busway and see it as a template for possible busways in other parts of the city where traffic has slowed the buses to a crawl. The 14th Street Busway program is expected to last 18 months, after which the DOT will examine the results and decide whether the program will continue. If you're elsewhere in the city and can't catch one of the frequent 14th Street buses, soon you'll be able to flag down a truly unique taxi option. This week, the Taxi and Limo Commission added the 2019 Tesla Model 3 as an approved vehicle that can be converted into a city taxi. The electric cars come in a variety of battery pack sizes, but come with a minimum range of 220 miles and will excel in city driving as they don't waste energy while stopped in traffic. During the Taxi of Tomorrow competition, part of the complaint against the winning Nissan NV200 van was the cost of maintenance, another area where Teslas would shine as they have no required maintenance. According to Alan Fromberg of the TLC, there are already Teslas operating as four hire vehicles in the city, but none have gotten the full taxi treatment yet. Any potential Model 3s that will be used as city taxis will receive the same makeover as all other vehicles, from the yellow paint job to the clear partition and the roof-mounted lights. It would be up to the taxi company using the Model 3 to figure out how and when to recharge the car, as Tesla explicitly prohibits taxi and rideshare vehicles from using its own supercharger network, which is the fastest way to recharge a Tesla vehicle. Taxi operators would instead need to install high-power electric hookups at their garages, much like companies install private gas pumps to refuel their fleets of vehicles. The TLC usually only approves vehicles for service once they've been requested by a taxi operator, so some operators may be already planning to put Teslas on the street now that the approval has gone through. If you see an unusually yellow Tesla Model 3 on the streets, send us in a photo at a great big city on social media. Coming up on November 28th, the 93rd annual Macy's Thanksgiving Parade will feature 16 giant balloons, 40 smaller balloons and inflatables, 26 floats, 1,200 performers, 11 marching bands, and 1,000 clowns. The new giant balloons this year are Astronaut Snoopy, Green Eggs and Ham, a new SpongeBob SquarePants design featuring Gary the Snail and the reappearance of Smokey the Bear. If you've ever followed a great big city during the Thanksgiving season, you may also know that this is the season for the AGBC Thanksgiving Parade, a page on our site that takes all 93 previous years of balloons and jumbles their names into a wacky new lineup. Let's hit the randomizer now and see what ideas we come up with for this year's A Great Big City Thanksgiving Parade. Visit agreatbigcity.com slash thanksgiving to shuffle the list and generate your own funny balloon names. Where else will you be able to see the Buzz Rugrats balloon, How to Train Your Santa Claus, and Mama and Papa Doughboy? Hopefully only in our hypothetical Thanksgiving parade. 
61 years ago on November 10, 1958, New York jeweler Harry Winston donates the Hope Diamond to the Museum of Natural History by mailing it to Washington, D.C. via registered mail. The jewel carries centuries of mystique and is valued at $200 to $250 million today, but it was mailed to Washington, D.C. for just $2.44 in postage, with a total cost of $145 once you included the registered mail package insurance. The current 45.52 carat blue diamond traces its history to the year 1666, when the diamond appeared in its much larger, cruder cut version and entered the international gem market. After being stolen from the collection of royal crown jewels during the French Revolution, the larger stone was likely recut in an attempt to disguise its identity, and the smaller recut stone became the Hope Diamond. The diamond passed between various gem merchants and socialites, eventually being purchased by New York diamond merchant Harry Winston in 1949 as part of a large gem collection. Winston would be persuaded to donate the gem to the Smithsonian, and on November 8, 1958, the gem was postmarked in New York and sent to Washington, D.C. in a brown paper package marked Fragile. The package was also marked to be delivered on November 10th, but it was picked up at the post office and delivered to the museum on the following Monday, November 11th, by postal worker James G. Todd. Although the diamond has long been rumored to bring bad luck or to carry a curse, it successfully arrived at the museum and has safely remained in the museum's collection ever since. Interestingly, the rumors about the diamond's curse may be due to the unique feature it has of emitting a faint red glow after it has been exposed to ultraviolet light rays causing the blue stone to appear otherworldly. View the link in the show notes to see photos of the packaging used to ship the famous diamond to the Smithsonian. Fifty years ago, on November 10, 1969, Sesame Street debuts on public television after an earlier test period in July when episodes were shown to preschoolers in Philadelphia and New York City. The show was unique in its urban setting, modeled after New York-style brownstones and incorporating live views of city parks. There's even a subway stop on the Sesame Street block that was made to resemble the 72nd Street Station House on the Upper West Side. If you're ever wondering how to get to Sesame Street, head on down to 63rd and Broadway, where the intersection just outside the Sesame Workshop offices at 1 Lincoln Plaza has been renamed in honor of Sesame Street. If you're wondering where the fictional Sesame Street is, the answer isn't so simple. It's modeled after a variety of Manhattan street scenes, from the Upper West Side to Alphabet City. The show films in Astoria at the Kaufman Astoria Studios, so that could also be considered the real-life location of Sesame Street. Two hundred and twelve years ago, on November 11, 1807, Washington Irving gives New York the name Gotham, which means Goat's Town. Long before Batman started patrolling the streets of Gotham City, the term had been used for centuries by the British to describe a town of simpletons. Poet and author Washington Irving was born in New York City and also made Terrytown in Westchester famous in his story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. 
He also cemented New York's nickname in history when he used it in the November 11, 1807 edition of his satirical literary magazine, Salmagundi. Although meant as a disparaging term, Gotham evolved to be a term describing townsfolk who would knowingly play the fool to avoid the wrath of the king. This interpretation of Gotham as being a town full of cunning people became closer to how the term was eventually used to describe New Yorkers. Amazingly, not only did Washington Irving popularize the name Gotham, he also created the character Diedrich Nickenbacher, a fictional historian who Irving created to promote and publish a satirical look at American life called A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty. The Nickerbocker pseudonym became another nickname for New Yorkers and went on to give a name to both the type of pants that Nickerbocker wore, a baggy set of knee breeches that became popular again in the 1920s fashion and were called Knickers, but the Knickerbocker name was also used for one of the first organized baseball teams, the New York Knickerbockers. And now that you're thinking of sports, you may notice another famous use of the Knickerbocker name, the New York Knicks. Manhattan's basketball team is also officially named the New York Knickerbockers. Mayor de Blasio finally called it quits after attempting a presidential run back in September. But this week, former Mayor Bloomberg indicated that he may take a swing at the campaign himself. Bloomberg has toyed with the possibility of running for president over the years, but seemed to declare his most serious effort for the upcoming 2020 election. While he has not officially declared his candidacy, this week Bloomberg filed paperwork to appear on the Alabama ballot, which has an early deadline candidates must meet, and is in the process of filing in Arkansas and is listed as a potential candidate by the Michigan Department of State. According to various reports from people close to Bloomberg, he has not made a final decision and will soon announce his intentions. In a statement, top advisor Howard Wolfson stated that this was not a campaign announcement but that Bloomberg was increasingly concerned that the current field of Democratic candidates are not well-positioned to defeat Donald Trump. Neither Bloomberg nor Wolfson provided any specific criticisms on policies or candidates that they find troubling, but earlier in October, Bloomberg had reportedly only considered entering the presidential race if front-runner Joe Biden dropped out. With Bloomberg's recent filing of paperwork in Alabama, the latest Quinnipiac poll was only able to ask the final half of those surveyed about a potential Bloomberg presidential run, and although the sample size is only 636 potential New Hampshire Democratic voters, the results are certainly less than encouraging. Of the 636 surveyed, 54% responded that they would definitely not vote for Bloomberg in the Democratic primary. Among the full 1,134 likely New Hampshire Democratic primary voters, Joe Biden still takes the top spot, but with only 20% of those surveyed choosing him if the primary were held today. In a separate question, 61% indicated they might change their mind on which candidate they'd vote for before the primary. In a November 8th poll by Morning Consult, Bloomberg faced high unfavorability numbers, but would fare about as well as Biden, Sanders, and Warren in a hypothetical matchup against Trump if the election were held today. Sixty-four years ago, on November 12, 1954, 
Ellis Island is closed after years of serving as a detention center after both world wars. This would end the use of Ellis Island as any official immigration location, and the island was closed and declared as excess federal property. It wouldn't be until 36 years later in 1990 that the island would be open to the public after an extensive, privately funded restoration. Ellis Island, which used to simply screen and document anyone interested in living in America, had begun to decline as early as 1921, when laws at the national level sought to limit the number of immigrants and instituted a quota system, attempting to maintain the current ethnic composition of Americans. As American embassies were established overseas, the screening of potential immigrants was no longer centralized at ports of entry, and the two world wars had a massive impact on the American immigration system, and the island was more often used as a detention center for those awaiting deportation. When the island closed in 1954, it had processed around 12 million new Americans. By 1964, the island had fallen into disrepair, with only one security guard and a Doberman Pinscher dog named Topper found roaming the island. The island has now been restored to its former glory and houses a national museum of immigration and art exhibits. But the plan wasn't always to restore the island. After being declared excess property, the government looked to sell the island, and one of the proposals involved a Frank Lloyd Wright-designed futuristic city that would house 7,500 residents and a 500-room hotel in curved space station-like structures sitting on a circular terrace floating atop the original land of the island that would be supported like a suspension bridge with large cables stretching out from the central towers. This self-contained city design was one of many redevelopment ideas rejected by the government, and the island was instead refurbished and opened to the public as a national park. 18 years ago, on November 12, 2001, American Airlines Flight 587 crashes in the Bell Harbor neighborhood of Queens on takeoff from JFK Airport, killing all 260 people aboard and five people on the ground. The NTSB determined that the cause of the crash was overuse of the rudder controls when the plane encountered turbulence from a larger aircraft that took off in front of it, causing a piece of the tail to break off. The flight was headed to Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, so a large number of those killed were Dominican nationals. In memory of those lost, a memorial wall stands along Rockaway Beach, designed by Dominican artist Freddy Rodriguez, that features windows and a doorway that face in the direction of the Dominican Republic and includes the names of all those who perished in the crash. And finally, looking back through a great big city history, two years ago we pointed out something you may not notice from ground level, but now may be able to see from the new observation deck in Hudson Yards. At the corner of 27th and 12th Avenue in Manhattan, at the Star at Lehigh building, there's a huge replica of a Hugo Boss perfume bottle on the roof of the building. Check out the link or just zoom in on Google Maps to see the big bottle from a sky-high location. Three years ago, New York One was rebranded as Spectrum News after New York One was acquired by Time Warner and became Time Warner Cable News New York One. It was again renamed as Spectrum New York One to align with Charter Communications' business and consumer-facing Spectrum brand of communication services. Although the name may have changed to Spectrum News New York One, 
The website ny1.com is still the company's main site for New York news, and the Spectrum News part of the name is rarely mentioned. And eight years ago, a major blow that signaled the end of Occupy Wall Street, as they were formally evicted from Zuccotti Park. The group had literally set up camp with tents and built their own infrastructure in the park, and they would still be allowed to use the park during most of the day, but the city cited health and fire safety hazards that would require all property, tents, sleeping bags, and tarps to be removed. Although the group was allowed to return to the park, they could no longer bring those permanent camping materials and instead use the park as a temporary meeting place and organizational space. A great big city has been running a 24-hour news feed since 2010, but the AGBC News podcast is just getting started and we need your support. A great big city is built on a dedication to explaining what's happening and how it fits into the larger history of New York, which means thoroughly researching every topic and avoiding clickbait headlines to provide a straightforward, honest, and factual explanation of the news. Individuals can make a monthly or one-time contribution at agreatbigcity.com support, and local businesses can have a lasting impact by supporting local news while promoting products or services directly to interested customers listening to the podcast. Visit agreatbigcity.com advertising to learn more. A Great Big City is more than just a news website. It automatically checks MTA data before morning rush hour and sends out notifications if there are delays on any subway lines, Long Island Railroad or Metro North trains, and bridges and tunnels. Follow A Great Big City on social media to receive the alerts. Park of the Day. Ewan Park at Johnson Avenue, West 232nd Street and Riverdale Avenue in the Bronx. John Ewan was a brigadier general in New York State's National Guard during the Civil War. Kingsbridge in the Bronx, named for the first bridge connecting Manhattan with the mainland in 1693, was strategically important during the Revolution and in the New York Campaign and subsequently in the British defense of the city. In Parks events, stop by West 235th Street in the Bronx to help Raoul Wallenberg Forest replant some trees. The volunteer event will help the stewardship team plant trees to keep the Raoul Wallenberg Forest healthy. The event begins Sunday, November 17th at 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., and you should wear clothes and shoes that you don't mind getting dirty. By planting trees, you'll help the city as trees remove pollutants directly from the air by absorbing them through their leaf surfaces, and they absorb carbon dioxide from the air, using it to grow new stems and leaves. Now let's see where our robot friend will be sprouting up this week on the concert calendar. This is the AGBC concert calendar for the upcoming week. Brutus is playing St. Vitus Bar on Wednesday, November 13th. Charlie Bliss is playing Webster Hall on Wednesday, November 13th at 6 p.m. The Charlie Daniels Band with the Almond Betts Band are playing Beacon Theatre on Wednesday, November 13th at 8 p.m. Seafield and the Velt are playing The Warsaw on Thursday, November 14th. Old Crow Medicine Show and Charlie Warsham are playing The Town Hall on Thursday, November 14th. This Will Destroy You is playing The Bell House on Thursday, November 14th. Liz Fair is playing White Eagle Hall on Thursday, November 14th. Jay Park is playing Terminal 5 on Thursday, November 14th. 
Lux Prima is playing King's Theatre on Thursday, November 14th, Taking Back Sunday is playing Terminal 5 on Friday, November 15th. Blue October and Longwave are playing Webster Hall on Friday, November 15th. Black Mountain and Riley Walker are playing the Bowery Ballroom on Friday, November 15th. Remember Sports and Lisa Prank are playing Rough Trade NYC on Friday, November 15th. The Mystery Lights, Miranda, and The Beat, and No Parents are playing Market Hotel on Friday, November 15th. Chris Thiele and Big Thief are playing the Town Hall on Saturday, November 16th. Highly Suspect and Slothrust are playing Brooklyn Steel on Saturday, November 16th. No Vacation, Drew Cooper, Robin's Lane Band, and Surf Rock is Dead are playing Music Hall of Williamsburg on Saturday, November 16th. The Magnetic Fields and Stefan Merritt are playing Symphony Space on Saturday, November 16th. From Indian Lakes, Queen of Jeans, and Yum are playing Rough Trade NYC on Saturday, November 16th. Anderson Pock is playing Brooklyn Steel on Sunday, November 17th at 8 p.m. Thanks for listening. Find more fun things to do at a greatbigcity.com slash events. Here's something you may not have known about New York. Those dark green mailboxes along the street that don't have any way to put mail inside are actually relay boxes and are used so that mail carriers don't have to carry an entire route's mail at one time. Once a mail carrier delivers the first part of their route, they stop by that box, unlock it, and take out the next part of the route, and then continue delivering. Extreme highs and lows for this week in weather history. 80 degrees on November 15, 1993, and a low of 17 degrees on November 16, 1933. Weather for the week ahead will be chilly, with overcast days and lows in the 30s at night. By next Monday, the highs will rise into the 50s, but there will also be a possibility of light rain. Thanks for listening to A Great Big City. Follow along 24 hours a day on social media at A Great Big City or email contact at agreatbigcity.com with any news, feedback, or topic suggestions. Subscribe to A Great Big City News wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Player FM, or listen to each episode on the podcast pages at agreatbigcity.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening and visit our podcast site to see show notes and extra links for each episode. Our intro and outro music is Start the Day by Lee Rosphere, and the concert calendar music is from jukedeck.com. Thanks for being part of a great big city.